Want to widen your career options? Consider the Master of Science and Business degree at Mays Business School. MS Business is an intensive one-year master's degree for non-business majors that are graduating this year or have recently graduated. Our program is highlighted by practical, experiential learning, running a real business with real money, and an international trip abroad. Events will be hosted where you can learn more. Check our website for more information at maze.tamu.edu. Welcome to May's Mastercast. I'm Shannon Deer, the Assistant Dean for Graduate Programs, here with your whoa, 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 wonderful host, Ben Wiggins. Hey, Shannon. How are you hey. doing today? I'm doing great. How are you, Ben? I'm doing well. It is a beautiful day in Aggieland. It, it was is. not a beautiful weekend in Aggieland, but today is really I don't nice know. Out. Yesterday and Friday were fantastic. It just wasn't a beautiful Saturday. That's but true. That's man, true. I'm loving the weather. Yeah. I'm a little sunburned because I can't stop sitting outside because I love it. Makes me so happy. Good. We have two guests on today's show, David Flint and Joan Quintana. And David and Joan are both important to Mays for multiple reasons. David is a faculty member here. He teaches several management courses. This coming year, he's going to start teaching international business for the MBA program. He teaches several strategy courses. He also, he didn't talk about this in the episode, but he also leads a study abroad to South Africa. And he takes students to South Africa, Mozambique, and Swaziland. And part of the trip includes the group going to Balimbu, Swaziland, where they learn about an orphanage there that's actually supported by businesses. It's a really cool little community there where they have businesses that are run in the community and the profits from those businesses go to the orphanage. And David works with that community and our students do some consulting for them through that study abroad, which is fantastic. And David has written a book called Thinking Beyond Value. He uses a framework in that book called V-Real, which is spelled V-R-E-E-L. V-Real stands for value and You think about value creation by thinking about rareness, erosion, enablers, and longevity. And David does a great job of talking through the book, as well as Joan, who is basically his marketing manager, business partner. And Joan and her husband are both really involved in the McFerrin Center for Entrepreneurship here at Mays and help students mentor them through their startups as well. And they give us lots of great projects for students to work on with entrepreneurial companies. And they're just fantastic people who are really supportive of the community. So we appreciate them and look forward to their episode. It's a great conversation. Let's get into it. Our guests today are the hosts of the Thinking Beyond podcast, David Flint and Joan Quintana. Welcome to the show. Howdy. Howdy. Thanks Great to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, good to be here. We've had a few laughs already. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah, that happens on our podcasts from time to time. All the time. All yeah. the time. Indeed. So we'll start with our we'll start with our icebreaker question for the both of you. What is your favorite superpower? Being able to accurately predict the financial markets. Can you imagine how much money you could make if you could do that? Yes. Yes, mm-hmm. I can imagine. Yeah. I've run it on Excel spreadsheets. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. You could buy all the rest of the superpowers with that. You could buy Batman for sure. So how much money do you think it would take to make someone Superman, for example? 
Oh, like what would you, how much would you have to spend to do that? Oh my goodness. I don't know. I've never tried to calculate it, but I'm assuming that, you know, if you had like a trillion dollars, you could probably get close. Yeah. yeah what, you probably could. Uh, what was it? The hundred million dollar man, the million dollar man, six million, six dollar million man. dollar. Yeah. Man. Back, yeah. At, back in the 1970s. That's when $6 million was something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Your favorite superpower? I think I'm going to say mind reading. If you could just read people's minds and understand even better than they do what they actually want, Mm -hmm. that'd be so super powerful. So not telepathy in that you can talk and listen, but just being able to listen? Yeah. Okay. Would you want to hear them or see them? Would you want to hear their thoughts or see their thoughts? Yes. Both. (laughs) Yes. So you could choose. This is a multimedia world. Sure. Yeah. Why not? So why not? Let's go all in. Would you want to hear them in their own voice or would you want to hear them in like a Siri voice? Oh, please. Their own voice. Because you have the inflection and everything. You got to get all the the subtleties, right? If I could make it like always in an Australian accent, I might pick that. No. (laughs) Because Australians have a distinct personality, right? Right. And... Not everybody in the world has that personality. That's true. But just hearing, like, I, I like an Australian accent. It's, I think it's the best accent. And if it could be in their personality with an Australian accent, but not the creepy Siri Australian <laughs> accent. I've actually not even tried. I've not tried changing Siri. I, I did try I, changing I, Siri and it didn't work out wasn't for me for this reason. Mm-hmm. The voice sounded great. I was like, oh, you're talking to me in Australian accent. This is exactly what I wanted. But then I realized when you ask questions of Siri or tell Siri to do things, you also have to use an Australian no. accent or otherwise she's like, I'm sorry, Ben, I didn't get that. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. Okay. Yes. Well, there, thank you for saving me some time on that experiment. So are you going to see this like in cartoon bubbles? Around people's heads, or because you said you yeah, wanted on your to visual see days. Hmm, how could this go? Cartoon bubbles might work. Hmm. Might work. How will it be? Do- It'll be something like a Google Glasses, only maybe like plugged into my brain, so I get it right, right away. So you like, get like a hug. Man, like what are they actually thinking right now? Right. Because wouldn't that be productive? Right. Imagine in marriage. Whew, this would save so much time and heartache. What do you really mean? Yeah, oh, yes. <laughs> right. Right. And I'm saying that as a woman, man, I think you men would be so well served by this. We too, absolutely right? would. I'm, and I say I'm, that as I say that as, you know, guilty as charged mixed message sender mm-hmm. occasionally. <laughs> I am very fortunate in that my wife doesn't do a whole lot with the mixed messages. If she That's wants awesome. me to want to do the dishes, she will say, I want you to want to do the dishes. But um, that is awesome. Awesome. Yes. But actually, she has a superpower. She does. She, oh, she has, she has so many superpowers. The, first, the most important of which is she can put up with me um, because I'm not always, not always easy to deal with. I try to be, but you know, I guess we're all, yeah, I'll try. David, I noticed you're a clinical professor. Tim Dye, our award-winning investments expert in the MBA program is also a clinical professor. So I've had good experience with clinical professors before. What led you to prefer this type of professorship? When I did my doctoral work here at A&M in the early 90s, I understood that, you know, I had to do research and things like that mm-hmm. um, to get the doctorate. Right. But it became apparent to me during the doctoral program that while I understand and appreciate research and can do it if I'm interested, I didn't want that to be 
the focus mm-hmm. of my life. Mm-hmm. So I actually did not intend on becoming an academic and having a, a career in academia. I had already been involved in entrepreneurship back in Arizona where I grew up, <laughs> was uh, an owner in a software company back in Scottsdale, Arizona. Mm-hmm. And so when I finished the uh, doctoral program, I just went back there and um, got pulled into academia by accident. So I've always been focused on the teaching and practice Mm -hmm. uh, rather than on the research. So it made a lot of sense to take a clinical position here when um, that was offered to me. But before here, I actually was in Utah for five years at a university named Utah Valley University that most people don't know about, even though it's huge. And there I was on tenure track. I was, I guess I was about to go up for tenure about the time that this position opened up at A&M and I came back. So you were, so tenure track, you were doing research then? Yeah. And yeah. Now that was a teaching focused institution. So the research requirements are very different than at a tier one research university. I see. And you said the university is fairly young. Mm -hmm. What is in, in university years, what is young? When I went up there in 2003, it had only been a bachelor's degree granting institution for under a decade, wow. I think. Okay, that and is... the business school there was going for its first AACSB accreditation, which is part of the reason that I was attracted to going there because I could be very involved in sort of setting the groundwork for that business school. It's fascinating stuff. It, you know, if we think about colleges, universities, institutions of higher learning, for the most part, they're pretty old. Mm -hmm. Like they've been around for, you know, a hundred years is kind of when you can say, okay, we're here to stay. (laughs) Um, Joan, tell us your story. So I think you're aware of this, but I studied journalism here at A&M, class of 92. And I actually, as an, as an undergrad, I decided to focus more on the technology side of things and Technical journalism ended up being what I ended up with. And it was just such a fantastic foundation for being able to learn and learn from people and uh, go into this world of technology commercialization and startups and entrepreneurship. And so I cut my teeth, if you will, at TTI, the Transportation Institute, Mm -hmm. which is a phenomenal institution on this campus and globally. And got to work with a bunch of really smart people. And that led me broader into the College of Engineering. I have lots of friends there and did a little stint at the Association of Former Students as their director of communications, which was a whole lot of fun. Right. But I really, my heart is in this entrepreneurial space and, and working with people who are starting something new or kind of just working in that small business environment. And so I focus more on the marketing communication side, but have increasingly over the last 15 years really worked in business strategy. I really come at that from the perspective that you can't separate the two. And so Seed Gallery and Advent GX and, and all of that is really centered around economic development with the emphasis being on supporting entrepreneurs because they're they're the engine, right? They're, 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 all, they're all the motors that keep our economy going. So we really focus on that. And and David's an entrepreneur. That's how I, I looked at the opportunity to work with him from the very beginning and bring, I, I write. So I'm a, I'm a writer among other things. And so as a, as a writer and a storyteller, whether that's about some high tech thing that's on the side of the highway or 
a new technology or a new business or even a not-for-profit, um, helping them tell their stories in a way that enhances their business strategy is what I like to focus on. And this guy here has some really cool tools that he's developed to help people do that more effectively. Yes, indeed. So, so you've kind of already answered the question then, but how did, so for your part, how did your previous experiences inspire Thinking Beyond, your podcast? Well, Thinking Beyond, the podcast is just the outgrowth of everything else mm -hmm. that I've been involved in. Got involved in the software industry back in the early 1980s, back when personal computers were still kind of toys and people were trying to figure out how to do business applications with them. Right. And that was my first entrepreneurial exposure. I didn't actually start the company, but I was in very soon after it started and I became one of the owners. And over time, I became one of the key people in the company. Mm -hmm. Stayed with that company all the way uh, through 2014. It was all the way until 2014 until I finally sold out my last interest in the company. Okay. So over 30 years with that business. But that business led to businesses in real estate and then some insurance and some logistic tech and all that kind of stuff. And then doing some not-for-profit stuff along the way as well. You know, when you start doing things, usually other doors start opening for you, That's you know, because you develop relationships and connections. And if you're kind of successful over there, people say, hey, come over here and play in this sandbox too. So, so I was involved in the business world and the not-for-profit world. And as I said, I didn't intend on being an academic. But when I went back to Arizona, after being here in the early 90s working on the doctorate, mm -hmm. some faculty members who had been part of the business school and it wasn't named the Mays Business School then, <laughs> it was just the business school, had moved to the Arizona State University system. And they called me up and asked if I would like to just do some adjunct teaching. And oh. I started doing that in the Arizona State system on the West Campus. And then it became, can we get you full time? And I said, I don't really want the research academic. And they said, what if you just taught for us? And I said, well, that could be fun. So I started doing that. And so I've always been involved in practice, both for-profit, not-for-profit. And then sure. I got pulled back in to the teaching side of things. Right. Um, so all of that is leading up to this podcast in the sense that all of that background created the V-Real framework that I use when I'm trying to help people think strategically. And that led to the book. And then the book led to the podcast. Hmm. So what was the moment where you two said, let's work together? So David had talked about the fact that he had some ideas and people had been prompting him, oh, you should write a book, you should write a book. And for a number of reasons, I hadn't happened yet. And so we sat down and talked about the ideas that he has. I took copious notes because I was really trying to understand. And even as I was trying to understand, I was trying to evaluate, okay, market potential. What do we have here? Audiences, sure. practicality, pragmatic. Like, is this something that can work? Shaping. And so we were at Harvest, actually. Mm -hmm. And he described, among other things, he described the V-Roll framework. And it just was very clear to me, okay, this is, this is something that is indeed very valuable, potentially very valuable. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's a lot that goes into 
creating that value and making it work and people have to know about it. (laughs) (laughs) So it's challenging, but I knew right away because I work with a lot of companies, a lot of startups, a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of individuals, young people that I mentor that the need exists in some really big ways for people to be able to just really evaluate what they have to work with in terms of resources and capabilities, and then be able to create a strategy around that that can actually work over time in a market. So whether you're an individual trying to find a job or start a new career, or you're a startup company or your existing organization, there is a real need to be able to think strategically. And this is very well documented out in, you know, in the, in the research that people struggle with this thing called strategy and they're not really don't, don't know how to do it very well or very effectively. They don't want to work on strategy. They're not really thinking critically in a good, in a, in an effective way. And so V-Roll is a tool to help people learn to think more strategically in a very simple way. And it's so, and, and V-Roll is really sticky. So once you understand it and you sort of get the language it changes how you think. Okay. So what is the purpose of Thinking Beyond? The purpose of Thinking Beyond the podcast is really to provide listeners with some stories they can learn from. So it's always valuable when you can learn from other people's experiences and maybe not make the same mistakes other people make. Um, I tend to have to, I need to make my own mistakes how God made me, I, mean, I think, but, <laughs> but it really is valuable and it's inspiring when you can hear, especially maybe as an entrepreneur, when you can hear from somebody who's a little bit further down the path than you are, mm-hmm. who's already struggled with perhaps failing to think things through <laughs> and overcoming that, whether or not they did so with V-Roll uh, is, is really, really valuable. And it's just inspiring to know that there's somebody, obviously there's a lot of people out there who are ahead of you, or maybe there are people who are right where you are struggling with something, but conversations with strategic thinkers, many of the people on the podcast are strategic thinkers. Many of them naturally, many of them actually had to learn to think strategically. And V-Roll has played a big role in that for them. So V-Roll has been around for a number of years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we started talking about it probably about 20 years ago now. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you described hearing about people's mistakes that they're mm-hmm. making in thinking strategically. What are what are the most common of those? You know, I mean, I think entrepreneurs for the most part consider themselves to be pretty smart people, but are there any recurring themes that you keep running into stuff that you like maybe even steer your guests away from at this point, just because you've done it so many times? What are the, what are the most common things that come up on the show in terms of teaching people to think strategically? For the budding entrepreneurs out there, it's falling so in love with your idea that you don't do your homework around that idea. Okay. You know, people in the entrepreneurship world talk about it being your baby. Right. And you don't see the flaws in your baby. Right. right? That's probably the biggest issue for entrepreneurs. For people who are running organizations in general, whether Mm. for profit or not for profit, it's not thinking enough in the full context of what they're doing. Okay. And the V-Real framework prompts them to think in that full context. They get... They get into habits, they get 
sort of tunnel vision at times. I was going to say that same word. It sounds like in both cases, you're dealing with a little bit of tunnel vision. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But the flair of it is different. Right, right. So when you talk about doing your homework then for the entrepreneurial side, does that involve market research? Mm -hmm. What else, what else does it involve? Well, actually this drops right into the V-Real framework. Okay. You always start with thinking about how you're creating value. And that means you have to know your market. You have to know who your customers are. You have to know what they consider to be value. Um, It's in their head, Mm -hmm. not your head. So you got to get out of your head and get into theirs. So that's where you always start is understanding your customer base, understanding your market, how you actually are creating value. But then, and this comes out of the resource-based view of the firm, which is a big academic area in strategic management, Um, you have to consider all the resources and capabilities that go into actually creating that value. Hmm. And once again, this is something where people may not do enough thinking about all of the resources and capabilities that must come together in order to do that. The second thing then is the R, which stands for rareness or rarity, if you want to use that word. It's not enough to create value. You have to do it in a way that has some degree of rareness to it. Right. If you don't, then you're going to be at parity with everybody else in the marketplace who can create that same sort of value in the same way. And parity is the enemy of rarity. <laughs> yes, it nice. is. Um, I have a I have a former student of mine who's an entrepreneur, multiple businesses that he's dealing with these days, mm-hmm. and he likes to say parity is poverty. Oh, yeah, yeah. So understanding, you know, some degree of rareness and how you can have that and what really makes you rare in that bundle of competencies that you're developing through your resources and capabilities uh, is step two. And if you don't have some degree of rareness, stop, (laughs) start over. Keep Um, thinking. Yeah, keep thinking. Keep thinking. Um, But then going beyond that, you have to think about the eroding factors Mm -hmm. that are going to come in and work against your value creation and your rareness. Right. And then you have to think about the enabling factors that are going to allow you to blunt or stop eroding factors and support your value creation and your rareness. And you have to prioritize all of that because obviously not everything that can hurt you is as important, you know? So what's at the top of the list? Right. And the same thing with enabling factors, what floats to the top of the list of the key enablers that you got to put in place? Right. So eroding factors and enabling factors are kind of like the derivatives of strength and opportunity versus weakness and threat. It's combining, I, it's combining the internal and external aspects of those and looking at the changes in them? There, there is that aspect to it. Okay. But I like to use the terms eroding and enabling right. because I think that focuses people's attention better on what they really need to think about. Okay. Um, you know, if you do a typical SWAT exercise with people – they often come up with all kinds of things that they consider to be strengths or weaknesses or opportunities and threats without necessarily a really clear, sharp focus as to why. I'm trying to get people to focus on 
very specific things. Okay. This is going to erode my value creation. This is going to erode my rareness. This is going to enable me to stop this eroding factor. This is going to enable me to maintain a degree of rareness. Those kinds of very sharp, focused ways of thinking. It's it's more an assessment in terms of... It's not observational, it's more actional. Like these are the things that I need to take action on. Like what sets apart the eroding and enabling factors from the broad perspective of a typical SWOT analysis, Mm -hmm. as you say? Again, trying to get that focused and trying to get prioritization so that people go, that makes sense. Okay, this is what I need to do first. Because what I want to do, oh, and by the way, let's just throw the L in there at the end. Oh, yes. (laughs) The idea is how long do I have? How long do I have before eroding factors hit? How long do I have to get enablers in place? How long do I have to potentially earn that competitive advantage in the marketplace? Or how long until I can remove incompetencies and get at least back to parity? I mean, I I want that idea of dynamism and change to be in people's heads as they're thinking about this as well. Right. Because that's the world that we live in. And the snapshot of today has to be thought of in the context of the changes of tomorrow. Okay. At the end of doing a really good, thorough, V-real framework sort of way of thinking, the hope is that you can say, I need to do this, and this is why, and have a good sort of strategic kernel of a plan in place. Right. And when you, when you say, I need to do this and this is why, do you encourage them to think like Jim Collins talk about, talks about thinking in terms of your like profit per X, what is X? Find your X. Is, is there a really specific way that you frame that I need to do this and this is why, um, or no? No, I think it's more just the way that I said it there. You know, when people have a a good, strong awareness that, Hey, at the top of my list of things I need to do is this, and I can tell you why. Uh Because this is going to stop an eroding factor, or this is going to give me some rareness, or this is going to be a key enabler that I have to get in place. I'm happy. Right. Right? Because now people have some sort of a path forward with some sort of justification for it, and they're not just winging it. Right. What's been the best moment in terms of like either seeing the light bulb come on in somebody's mind or seeing them execute something that you find really compelling that's going to make the world better or make someone's life better? What have been your your best moments in implementing this framework? There's so many. I think that I'm really most excited, maybe not most excited, but I'm, I'm pretty excited about how not-for-profits are employing the mm-hmm. B-Real framework. Typically, when you have leaders in the not-for-profit world, they they don't have a, a big business background, right? So maybe they haven't been to business school. Right. Uh, they haven't had the benefit of classes in strategic management or that sort of thing. They're probably, if they've risen to the CEO level, they're probably pretty sharp, right? But they still need to be able to build sound strategy and... Very importantly, get their teams and their donors and their volunteers on the same page, which is important no matter what you're doing. But in the not-for-profit world, it's especially important because resources are super limited and volunteer 
volunteer burnout can be a real thing and, and uh, donor burnout can be a real thing. There's lots of competition for those things. So it's been really exciting to see some of our friends in the not-for-profit space, um, not just start thinking with V-Roll, but I mean, really own it. Like in really surprising way. So the example that comes to mind, I know David knows exactly what I'm going to say right now, um, <laughs> is the, uh, um, there's an organization called Voices for Children. And we worked a fair amount with the local Voices for Children of the Brazos Valley, which provides court-appointed special advocates, volunteers for kids in the foster care system. Oh. So you talk about life-changing, right? This is important stuff, right? Sure. These are some of the most vulnerable people in our communities, right? Are these kids that are, for whatever reason, have found themselves in the foster care system. And the goal of ACASA, a court-appointed special advocate, is to advocate for the child. Mm -hmm. But the assumption is that the best case is to get that family back together. If we can, okay. let's get that family back together. And so literally a one-day strategic planning workshop where V-Roll was the framework we used with a staff of 12, so it's a very small organization, mm -hmm. has resulted in this team using V-Roll at so many levels of the organization that it's just so powerful. So one of the things about V-Roll that's, that's powerful is the language is super simple, right? It doesn't, yes. a, a five minute conversation and you get it, right? You can start using this terminology to communicate more effectively with your colleagues or, or what have you. So that's one of the things that immediately attracted me to it is communication is, can be so difficult unless you have enough genius to simplify it. And if you can simplify communication so that it actually happens, you're really changing the world sure. for, for the better. And so Viral does that in, right. in the most powerful but simple way. So for this staff of 12, they started using Viral not only to set the strategy and AJ Reynolds, who is the CEO, I don't know what her right director. title, director, yeah. She's an extremely strategic thinker, just naturally gifted in this way. Uh -huh. But her staff are people who are probably, you know, in the social work space, right? Sure. And so what they're doing now with V-Roll is internally inside their organization, they're kind of looking at one another on the team and they're sort of V-Rolling themselves to see what, what, how are each team member, how are they unique? Um, how are they rare among the team so that they can sort of determine how to best contribute to this team dynamic in the organization. But then they're also taking it all the way down to the family level. And they're using this language to talk to families and help them understand that mom and dad, if mom and dad are both in the picture, are by definition valuable and rare. But there are eroding factors that mm. can be so big yeah. that that can destroy that value completely. It can destroy the ability for mom and dad to be the mom and dad they want to be, right? But then you can put enablers in place to defend against that erosion. Maybe that's education. Maybe that's some sort of a treatment plan, um, some kind of an intervention. So you can put an enabler in place to defend against those eroding factors. And then you can think about how long is it going to take longevity? How long is it going to take to get those enablers completed so that erosion is arrested and mom and dad are able to be valuable and rare? Hmm. And 
the amazing thing is, is this is suddenly not emotional, right? It's objective. And if ever you need something objective, it's when somebody's sitting across the table from you and saying, I can't give you your child today, right? This is powerful yeah. stuff. Yeah. But let's talk about what we can do to change that so we can put your back, your family back together. So when I found out that literally the day after we had our one day workshop, AJ gets an email from one of her advocates, advocate trainers saying, can I use V-Real in my role? And AJ was like, yeah, if you think it's effective. Mm -hmm. And so we're, we're in the process now of helping them refine how they're doing that. But talk about changing lives. No, this is no powerful kidding. stuff, right? No this is really powerful stuff. And you don't think about... Well, I didn't. Now we do. <laughs> We've had a couple people bring this to our attention. Right. We weren't thinking about V-Roll as a tool for families. But this is not the case. This is not unique. We've had another user group say, oh, yeah, we use V-Roll with our kids. We use it with our family because you have to make strategic decisions about resource allocation. And and every child's unique and rare. And, and how do you decide if you're going to get a new water heater or a new roof or spend those resources and how long do we have <laughs> before we really have to make that decision. So I think one of the things that's so powerful about V-Real is it really does allow for an objective conversation about something that could be emotional. And for entrepreneurs, it's always emotional. It just, it just is mm -hmm. because it's their baby, right. right? And they're always excited about this product or service or whatever they're bringing to market. And so if you can help them think about, okay, that's think beyond value, think beyond the value proposition. Like, Cause some entrepreneurs really a lot actually struggle to put together a, a sound value proposition. Mm -hmm. But if they can do that, then the likelihood that they're maybe a little too in love with their idea is pretty high. So we get them to think beyond that. Okay. So what's going to happen? Cause something's going to happen. So what's going to happen? And thinking through that, we get a lot of deer in the headlights kind of things going like, yeah. uh, well, uh, but it's okay. It's okay. You should think about what's going to happen because next we're going to think about what you can do about it. And then we're going to think, we're going to put this all in the context of time, like, okay, longevity. And so what happens is you start with this big, long list of sort of possibilities or resources and capabilities right. and th going through this process of V-Roll, you end up with focus a few things that you need to focus on in order to actually deliver on that value proposition. So it sounds like in every case, whether you're talking about someone's metaphorical child or someone's literal child, mm -hmm. it's really about, and this was, I think, a word you used earlier, it's really about prioritization. Mm -hmm. It's about mm -hmm. where do we need to spend the most of our time? Mm -hmm. Is that right? Right. And that's yeah. strategy, right? Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. Or sometimes, in all fairness, it is, uh, we need to stop and, oh. and start over. Right, right. And go in a different direction. Yeah, we need a new plan. Mm -hmm. And that's a great thing, by the way, especially as an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. Or even in even in the case of a, of a child who's been taken out of a home. Sometimes you have to go a different path. Right. Is there ever a stopping of certain things without starting over? Like Jim Collins oh, sure. talks about the stop doing list. Sure. <laughs> yeah. I hope by thinking about eroding and enabling factors and longevity, you right. can identify things that you go, okay, you know, we need to stop this or we need to start that uh -huh, or whatever uh -huh. without necessarily starting completely over. Sure. Absolutely. Right. So you both wear, as is obvious to our listeners by now, you both wear a ton of hats 
tell us about the gallery. I get invites from my friend Valerie uh, oh, nice. all the time. So um, Seed Gallery. Shout Seed, out to Valerie. Seed uh, is spelled S-E-A-D, so it's spelled wrong, but it's right for us. It's <laughs> Science, Engineering, Art, and Design. And so I mentioned earlier that... Our company, AdventureX, is a community and economic development company, and Seed Gallery is really a project of our company. Okay. And we put it in place in Bryan because we noted that in Bryan at the time, there was no dedicated gallery space, and the city of Bryan was looking to apply for, and we, in fact, we were supporting um, them applying for this uh, cultural arts district designation, which is a great thing for a community, strategically speaking, because then the state of Texas actually does some marketing for you, which is great leveraging of resources, right? So um, we were working on that. And at the same time, Jose and I had gotten involved in the um, International Network for Science, Engineering, Art, and Design, which is really just about um, encouraging and fostering innovation by getting people from all of those different disciplines to come together and talk about creative solutions to hard problems. So Seed Gallery is both a traditional art gallery, fine art gallery, and it's a place to exhibit more science and engineering oriented art and um outreach types of activities. So we partner with groups on campus to put together exhibits that are more on that side of things. And the whole idea there is one, to kind of let the community see all some of this great stuff that's happening on campus, whether that be in geosciences or engineering or I don't know, pick another science, wildlife and fishery science. We've got some things coming up there, sure. but we want them, those things to be available here. But we also really want to encourage that next generation of scientists and engineers and to get excited about some things and to understand, well, what does it really mean to be a geoscientist or what is, what does a wildlife biologist do or those types of things? And so we put together really visual and engaging exhibits that start it in Bryan and then travel and go to underserved communities. Hmm. What's the most striking piece that you've seen there? Does anything oh jump into your mind? There's just no way to even go there. Um, <laughs> there's so We've got seven years of art behind us right now. So I think one of the exhibits that I found the most rewarding was actually an exhibit that we did um, where we collaborated with some of our more traditional visual artists. And um, we invited a handful of them to create an original piece inspired by some... This is going to get technical fast. I'm probably going to mess it up. But inspired by some core samples that were taken around the world in the, from the ocean floor oh. by some slides, photography that was made of those core samples. And of course, they use those to study all kinds of things, but climate change and all sorts of things. But it was really interesting to see what these artists came up with and their interpretation and all the different angles that they came at. But then also we, we were able to couple that with actual core samples and have them there on hand and, and have a more engaging experience. So that's really what we strive for is to put together engaging experiences. So people dig in a little bit more. We use some technology for that. And, and it, it was, it was really fun. Uh, Some of the stuff that came out was a little bit wild and off in left field for me, but it's art. And so awesome. You know, I love that. And I love the creativity. And then when you bring that with science, it's, there's always discovery there. Fun but stuff. Seed Gallery is only one piece of Advent GX, Oh yeah. Though. It's a small project, really. Advent GX, we work with entrepreneurs and communities around the world to help them form sound strategy for building vibrant economies and increasing quality of life. So 
strategy is a big part of this. The business incubator that we have, the innovation underground is, is a huge part of our efforts. It's probably the thing that takes the most time. We're serving 60 entrepreneurs right now out of downtown Bryan Mm -hmm. from around the world. And actually David's book, we adopted it when it was released as, as a tool that we use now to help filter the entrepreneurs. We have a lot of entrepreneurs who come to talk to us and say, Hey, can I be part of your business incubator? And Naturally, they're really excited about their baby and we want them to be excited, uh, but we needed a way to slow down that flow. And so we now give them a copy of Think Beyond Value, Building Strategy to Win and say, this is for you. Have a look and come back and make a presentation to us through the V-Roll framework and talk to us about your idea. And that accomplishes a couple of things. One, if an entrepreneur is not willing to take the time to do that, then great. We're probably, we shouldn't be working together <laughs> because that's just, education is good for, for all of us. But also um, we've had a few come back and say, I am not ready. Oh, And that's wonderful. Honestly, that's so, so good for uh, an entrepreneur to realize they have more thinking to do. They have to work a little bit more on their strategy. And sometimes we take that as an opportunity to sit down and say, okay, what's on your mind? Because that could mean they're really close to something okay. super powerful, or it could mean they've got some work to do and they need to come up with a new idea. Uh, but if an entrepreneur is willing to think things through and be critical of their own ideas and their their opportunities and, and really think strategically about their market, that's that's who we want to work with. And V-Roll really encourages that activity. <laughs> I bet so. <laughs> and then, of course, you also do the Grand Stafford Theater no, and the do. Ice House. Yeah, so those are other community and, yeah. projects of mm-hmm. ours. We have Grand Stafford Theater, Ice House on Main, um, Seed Gallery, Innovation Underground. Locationally, I'm All sensing this a unifying. All of in downtown Bryan, yes. right. So, so we work with... Um, uh, rural and underserved communities. So downtown Bryan becomes a place where we can bring people from around the world, a lot in Texas, but also around the world come here and they see what you can do with a building that it maybe is falling down or has been forgotten for far too long or what you can do with um, a human resource base and to, to make some things happen and to start to generate economic activity, which generates better quality of life. And so we bring people here from all over the world and they see that. When did downtown Bryan break through? Well, downtown Bryan is breaking through. (laughs) It's a work in progress. It's a work in progress. I mean, it's really wonderful. It's, it is so far past where it was 10 years ago. Um, I think the city of Bryan, it's probably been between 15, 20 years now when the city of Bryan made the strategic decision to invest in the infrastructure Mm -hmm. and they did such a phenomenal job. No question. I mean, in terms of strategically thinking through, okay, what what does the city need to do to literally lay the groundwork so that entrepreneurs can come behind the city investment and generate the tax revenue that is the return on investment for the city, right? And so that has been at least 15 years when they literally tore up the streets, redid all of the infrastructure from building to building, um, all of the sidewalks. And they did that great master plan for the historic town, downtown area. But it's still all of the activity until the last two years, maybe three at the most, has been centered on that 
south side of downtown, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they invested all the infrastructure all the way to the north side, to all the way to um, Martin Luther King Boulevard, where the Ice House on Main is. Okay. So they invested all the way, but the activity really wasn't on the north side until this last few years. Okay. So there's a lot more to go. There's a lot more to come. Downtown Bryan is just getting started. That's great. Great to hear. Breaking the fourth wall for a moment. I, I assume you two have had some interaction with Professor Krychek. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Of course. Right. In fact, he has paintings in the seed gallery right at the right moment. Right now. I, yes. I was wondering if, <laughs> yes, I was wondering if that and was the case. it's not the first time. So, right. Yeah. yeah. He and I have actually done a little music together. Yeah. And he's performed at the Grand Stafford Theater. So what's next for you two? Well, <laughs> actually, we've got a bunch of things cooking. <laughs> we do have um, but, a lot of things cooking. They're mostly center, centered around um, the launch of the value creation company. We've been talking about this now for over a year. Uh-huh. And the idea is we have people who want to be trained in V-Real. Uh, they want to become certified in some way uh, as V-Real advisors so huh. that they can go out and use this with people. So we want to be able to train people. We also uh, want to be able to do consulting with people. We have oh, at least two more book projects mm-hmm. that are probably coming on the way. And we also are in the process of creating some online training materials as well okay. so that people can at least get a good initial exposure to using the V-Real framework in their own contexts. Yeah. And then there's a bunch of other stuff. Take it away, Joan. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like you covered that fairly well, but there is a, there is a lot going on in terms of really building a community of like-minded thinkers who understand that value creation is kind of the point Right. So um, when you're working in a in a free market, you certainly need to make something of value for somebody else. Right. There's that exchange. And that's very, very important. Adam Smith. There you go. (laughs) Gotta love him. So there's that. But it's also goes down not just from the company perspective or even the not for profit perspective, but all the way down to the individual perspective. And so there's a whole lot of need for people to be able to think strategically about themselves as a bundle of resources and capabilities, if you think about that. And, and in, in the, maybe this, this might be considered part of the personal development space, but you have a sort of the, a lot of angst around that. Like, what was I made for? What's my purpose? What, you know, is this job even real, really what I should be doing? Like all of this sort of angst that people have. And, and sometimes it's because they're having a bad day. And sometimes it's because they're not using the resources and capabilities available to them. And it's on some kind of gut level, they know that. They know that they're not fully exploiting their capabilities. And I just fundamentally believe that when you tap into what it is that you were made to do, Mm-hmm. what you're uniquely able to accomplish in the world because of your unique combination of skills and abilities and experiences and network and resources and capabilities and all of those tangible and intangible things, right. you find great joy and satisfaction every day because you're like, wow, you know, I just did something and that was useful. That was valuable. And it was powerful, even if it was just for that one person or a large audience or a small, you know, a small company that you're working for. There's great 
there's power in that. There's in that joy. And so we want to multiply that by helping people sort of key into, okay, what is it for you? Right. And, and, and sometimes that feeling is at its best when it goes along with a feeling of really only, only I could have done this or, right. or there are maybe a few hundred people in the world right. who could have done this, but I was standing here mm-hmm. on this day and met these people's needs in right. this particular way. And it was, it was something that someone else, if they had just tried to step into my shoes, it's a place they would have struggled. Right. And instead I swung my bat and I hit the ball out of the stadium. Right. Because you're using all of those things. But I think first you have to know what is it you have to work with. And I think I think people often really either they struggle to to make that inventory or or they feel like they're not supposed to. Like somehow that's not humble. <laughs> and, it's, oh. and and so or they, they hesitate because they're they're busy and I've got to just do this thing and work in the grind and I'm just supposed to be over here. And then that that will just eat your lunch. Mm-hmm. It'll just take everything you've got as opposed to really understanding, oh my gosh, I am energized in this particular way. This, this type of activity makes me go home happy that where this type of activity just completely like destroys me. Right. And so understanding and, and really looking at both the tangible, David talks about this a lot in his book, the tangible resources and capabilities, if you will, like I know how to write, right. (laughs) That's fairly tangible. Not everybody knows how to do that at all. Right. So I can combine my ability to write, my ability to communicate, um, my personal network and professional network, some various sort of intangible aspects of my lifestyle that allow me to be really flexible, all of those things. And then, uh, just now V real is a huge part of my resource and capability set. Mm-hmm. Um, and you combine all of those things and suddenly you find, okay, wait, I can create value for people in a way, like you said, that other people aren't going to be able to. Mm-hmm. And then I can, I can come alongside people who can compliment me. And maybe that means forming a company or maybe that means being part of a community or whatever. So, so we're really excited. You can tell I'm a little excited <laughs> about this, this opportunity no. that we're going to pursue and I'm, I'm already working with David and doing some research on on how we take V-Roll and interject it into this, for lack of a better phrase, personal development space mm-hmm. and just help people maximize their ability to create value and really their joy. When you're talking about sort of the Venn diagram of where someone finds their meaning, mm-hmm. what what are the what are the things that you focus on? Because the common ones are what do I what do I love doing? What am I good at? Um, I think one, one that sometimes people miss is they'll talk about like the economics of it, mm-hmm. but you need to consider both the economic ceiling and also the economic floor, mm-hmm. because for many people, and I saw this every single day that I lived in Los Angeles for an actor, for example, mm-hmm. the economic ceiling is extraordinarily high and the economic floor is below zero. <laughs> um, it's literally below zero because some people spend thousands of dollars a year on acting Mm -hmm. lessons and Mm -hmm. never get cast in anything. Mm -hmm. So when my dad gives his end of year lecture, Dr. Steve Wiggins, he gives his last lecture to his economics classes. He gives, he talks about this and he talks about those three things. And then he talks about a fourth one, which is how well does this, whatever my career or vocational pursuits are, how well does this fit into the rest of a life that I would want? And then Dr. Mark Antonio also talks about Ikigai, what the world needs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they have slightly different approaches to that question. 
what are the frameworks that you use to sort of help people zero in on where is my purpose? Well, I don't know that I I want to constrain that. Oh, okay. I, I think I want people to kind of have their own mix sure. in that regard. That makes sense. Um, but what I do want to help them think very carefully about is how they can create value right. in the world. Okay. Right? Very often that is a mix of value for you and for me, right? <laughs> yes, yes. Um, but getting them to think in that direction, I think often opens thoughts that weren't there before. You know, how am I actually creating value in my job or with a product or service or my volunteer activities or what, you know, how do I actually create value? Mm -hmm. And then thinking about how I can do that in ways that other people can't do that. So if you want to add in various pieces along the way to help you define that, great. Good. Plug your stuff. I, I mean, I don't know how I, you, we could probably we could probably talk for ten minutes about just where our listeners can find you. But what are the most important things? What should they What should they be looking for? Well, they should be following Dr. David Flint on Instagram and Facebook. Um, I'll make that face. Yeah, yeah. And LinkedIn. <laughs> I'm not good at social media. And um, also uh, coming soon is valuecreationco.com. And so we are okay. starting to tease that out right now, let people know that something is coming. And um, so that'll be that'll be coming out in a big way. Mm-hmm. So we're pretty and excited about that. Right now, drdavidflint.com mm-hmm. is okay. available mm-hmm. where you can find links to blog posts and the podcast. Podcast is like there. That. Podcast is on all the places where podcasts are. So, right. uh, but, and then of course, Joan Quintana, I'm on LinkedIn and Instagram and Facebook, all the things. So yeah, I'm on LinkedIn too, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. You are. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not good at social media. What can I tell? You? Magically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's uh, let's hit a few quick rapid fire to close us out. What do you consider each of you your most valuable failure, as briefly as possible? Believe it or not, I once, actually twice was uh, deeply fooled by somebody who was a great, truly con artist. Oh. And it it taught me a lesson. I should have learned from the first time, but I definitely learned after the second time. Okay. And so I am a normally very trusting person, and I'm not saying I'm changing that or anything, but I have learned because of that that I always have to try and understand who am I really dealing with here. Fair. Fair. Big early career failure uh, was just a lack of preparedness on my part. I I was assigned the task of going off to D.C. to make a presentation at a big, like global transportation conference, and I thought that it would be fine if I just wore casual clothes on the plane because I was going to have plenty of time to go ahead and and get there and change, go to the hotel before I had to actually stand in front of a bunch of people and make a professional presentation. And guess what? It just didn't work out that way. (laughs) The weather was bad and oh my gracious, it was bad. So I ended up getting there just in time to make my talk. But do you know how badly dressed I was? Like this is, you just have to prepare in life. You have to imagine 
that the worst is going to happen, be prepared for that. And I had checked my bags and they didn't make it. It was all the things went wrong. And thankfully, the crowd was gracious, but I was not my most confident and prepared because I wasn't prepared. So Mm. life lesson early on, grateful for it. I saw Shannon's eyebrows and like head nodding Mm -hmm. from the corner of my eye while you were saying that. What do you think is people's biggest misconception of you? We'll go with you first this time, Joan. My kids who have worked some in some of our businesses, Mm -hmm. they tell me that I'm intimidating Oh, and I'm so not intimidating. I mean, apparently I am, but I can be intimidating, but I'm, I am, I just love people so much and I go at a pretty fast clip and I'm pretty ambitious, but I think when people sit down and have a conversation with me, they realize that it's just really about them. My stomach is growling. I hope you can edit that out. I didn't have breakfast this morning. <laughs> oh, good. I thought about I, I, every now and then, like I'll do some lip smacking stuff on my mic just to irritate Kyle. But no, we can we can cut we can cut anything that shows up on the. Uh... Yeah, that's pretty funny. Um, I think people's biggest misconception of me is that I actually understand them. You know the character Sheldon on Big Bang Theory, yes. who is totally unaware Mm -hmm. of what he's doing. Okay. I am Sheldon cleaned up. He is speaking truth right now. Okay. This is truth. Yes. Yeah. All right. Um, I, I do not understand what's going on with other people. I don't. Okay. And so I have to be very careful about that. Um, I actually have to ask for help. Like, you know, what was going on there? (laughs) So I, you know, I'm just kind of a cleaned up Sheldon. Super honest. Appreciate super, that. super strategic thinker. Right. It's just the it's just the more human side. Where you're just like, <laughs> wait, there was some dynamic there. I'm I'm aware there may have been a dynamic yes. there. <laughs> yes, indeed, there was a dynamic there. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about it. <laughs> right. <laughs> if you could have anyone as a mentor for one day, who would it be? You may choose a religious figure, but if you yourself are religious, it can't be someone from your own religion. <laughs> well. I have always been, I shouldn't say always, because of course, not when I was a tiny, tiny kid, but for a very long time, I have been a big fan of C.S. Lewis. Oh. I just thought he, his writing was so clear and to the point, and he was able to create such interesting stories and nonfiction as well. Yeah. If I could sit down and just have a conversation with C.S. Lewis, uh, yeah, that would be great. One of my favorite lines that I've ever read is when they find out that in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that Aslan is a lion, <laughs> like a real lion. And I think Lucy asks, is he safe? <laughs> and I think it's Mr. Beaver who says, safe. <laughs> of course he isn't safe, yeah. but he's good. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I love that. I, I have been able to visit the kilns where he lived oh. and uh, his gravesite and the pub in Oxford where he and Tolkien and Dorothy Sayers and Charles Williams would get together on Tuesday nights, I think it was. Yeah. Good old C.S. Lewis. Mm, Good choice. Good stuff. It's hard to pick one for me. I have a lot of heroes, but I kind of knew David was going to say C.S. Lewis, so I chose a different one. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I see your hair flipping over there. (laughs) Gotten to know him pretty well. So there's there's a philosopher... I think he would consider himself more a philosopher than theologian, but a bit of both. Mm-hmm. Um, his name is Miroslav Volf, and he's out of 
Yale. And he wrote, he's, he's now retired, but he wrote a lot on something called the theology of work. And I have just a real interest in this. It plays right into my interest in economics and economic development and just maximizing human potential in general. Mm-hmm. And um, he really speaks in his writing to, and and also Dorothy Sayers, who is a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, but they both really wrote a lot about this notion that we were made to work. And what does that mean? And what are the implications of that? That work isn't something that you dread. Work is something you're excited about because you're made to do it. Yes. And I would sit down with him in a heartbeat and just let him tell me what else I should be reading. (laughs) Like, (laughs) who else should I I be? That'd that'd be great. I would love it. What is your fondest memory of TAMU or something that's happened around this community? There are a lot of good memories of Seriously? A&M. It's part of the reason that I was willing to come back and be part of the faculty here is because I had really good memories in the doctoral program. Mm. But I've also got a lot of good memories over the last almost 11 years that I've been back as part of the faculty. I got to say, one of them, though, that's going to stick is that football game with LSU last season that went for seven <laughs> overtimes. Whoop. Oh, my goodness gracious. Yeah, that one's going to stick. <laughs> have you seen the, Have you seen the His Knee Was Down video? No. So... Uh, uh, floating around on Twitter is something from the Twelfth Man TV. It's a, it's an audio feed of the room at Twelfth Man TV when Kellen drops back. He's his he goes down to pick mm-hmm. the ball up and then he throws the interception, and somebody in the booth says his knee was down, huh? And then they rule it an interception, and then the guy is going his knee was down. Run the replay again. Put it up on the uh-huh. put it up on the video board. You know, at the stadium, <laughs> uh-huh. and they're controlling the way that the replay actually gets seen. And he's like, okay, rock it back, and it's clear that his knee was in fact down. And then I don't know if this made any difference in how things were actually administered, but they decide to go to review. And you know the rest. Mm-hmm. So anyway, but it's on Twitter and it's really, it's really fun to listen. And and somebody says at the end, we're going to come back, we're going to win the game and they're going to carry us out of the stadium <laughs> on their shoulders. And that's kind of what happened. Yeah. So that was so cool. That was a great night. It really was. Uh, I, I do have season tickets. I sit at the very top center of the South end zone below yeah. the big screen. Uh-huh. And um, yeah, A&M football is just a hoot and a half. So sure is. Yeah, that so game. Oh my goodness. John. So this is going to sound a little somber, but in truth, it's just so hopeful. And it's one of the reasons I love Texas A&M and Texas Aggies. But so I think one of my most fond memories uh, goes around bonfire. And mm. I remember going to bonfire um, and taking my kids to bonfire. And then of course, we had that tragic day when bonfire fell and fast forward a few years. That was when I was working in the association of former students and we were writing an article about the opening of the bonfire memorial and, and doing a photo shoot and, and all of the, the media things. And at the time, my youngest daughter would have been maybe four years old and she's now an Aggie actually. And I took her on the photo shoot because I wanted to show in this, like the generations and how, even though we lost this particular tradition is, is not going to be the same going forward. And we lost which has, through such tragic events, right? So much loss as you walk through bonfire Memorial, if, as you walk, there's a cadence that's designed into that mm-hmm. with those stones sure. and you're walking through and, and that cadence alone that's created by your walk 
and then seeing that circle that's formed by the individual monuments is such a testament to a rhythm that is going to continue forward and a spirit that continues forward, even without that particular tradition, we remain such a powerful force in the world because we adhere to this tradition and these values that are so, so important for the world. And so I, I will always remember walking there, holding my four-year-old daughter's hand and walking. We're just going to do a photo shoot. I wasn't there to visit the memorial. I'd been there before. We were doing a photo shoot. And then we got the shot of her like pointing up and her little chubby hand. And that's just, to me, I will always remember it because it's like, okay, we, we had pain and we had great, great loss and we have such a bright future. And I just, I just love this place. And it's always, it's going to be true as long as we stick with those core values. We end each session with Good Bull. This is an opportunity to recognize someone else for something good or great they have done. Do you have someone you would like to send some Good Bull? I have a lot of people, but here at A&M, I do want to say thank you to Dr. Asgar Zardkui. Oh. Uh, he was my committee chair on my dissertation. And I don't know if I would have finished if it hadn't been for Asgar. Um, He's a great friend. He's a great mentor. He's a great scholar. And he is soon to retire after many years here. Yes. Yeah, it won't be the same when he is no longer here. Such a positive guy. Mm Mm-hmm. He makes you feel, as a student, he makes you feel like you can get this very from a very early stage. So we just came off of ring weekend of parents weekend and it was it was a ring weekend when we at Texas A&M ring day is a big deal. Right. And I'm just going to shout out. It was a tough weekend weather wise. We had some really very destructive weather in the region and Mm -hmm. families were coming from all over the country, all over the state, of course, but even all over the country to share in this very profound tradition that is the Aggie ring Mm -hmm. and the receipt of that. And I know how hard it was to change all the plans so that everybody would be safe despite the weather and ensure that uh, despite all of that chaos, um, there would be a very special moment for families coming into town as Aggies were getting their Aggie ring that would just go forward with them and through their careers. So shout out to the Association of Former Students for work well done. That's Good Bull. Yes. I'd like to send some Good Bull to Matt Dennis and Dr. Beth Dormeyer, a couple of good friends. So thank you guys. Thank you both for Thank you both for coming. This is a this is a really good really good discussion. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's been fun. We hope you enjoyed that episode with David and Joan. As we said, they're amazing human beings, and you hear that come across in the episode. No question. We have our Maze Mastercast top three takeaways, and we'll start with the first one, which seemed to us like the most impactful: the story that Joan told about V Real being used through Voices for Children, the organization that works with foster care and child advocacy. It's always a pleasure to see a framework that inherently can feel a little bit cold and impersonal being used to have an impact in a way that is so warm and uplifting. It kind of made my heart sore. Absolutely. I think I've, I've used the business model canvas framework, which has some similarities to David's V-Rail framework, although 
I find a lot of value in the V-Real framework that is not in the business model canvas, but I've used it for personal reasons. So the business model canvas starts in the middle with value proposition. Mm -hmm. And so you can think about that from your own personal perspective. What is your value proposition? And it goes beyond to basically who would be your board of directors, who would in your personal life, who would sit at the table of your board of directors. But I've heard David do that same thing with V-Real for someone on his podcast, walk them through kind of from their personal life perspective. And I think it has a lot of value. So, and, and they talked about that with what is your value in the world and not that it has to be one singular thing, but what are, where are you adding value that no one else could, I think is a really powerful question to continue to ask ourselves. Yes. And, and then also value, rareness, erosion. And erosion is what factors might chip away at your rareness and your ability to create value. And I think that's a great question to ask ourselves too. Yes, it's really important. And I, and I, I liked the fact they, they hit on something that is an issue that I've kind of always had with the SWAT framework, the strength, weakness, opportunity, threat framework, which is bringing all those things together and thinking, what do I need to act on right now? What are the things that are most important to consider in terms of eroding factors and enabling factors? I was, (laughs) when we talked about enabling, I was in the family context. I was like, well, that can be a good thing and it can be a bad thing. (laughs) It has, it has some previous connotations that come with it, which is not how they mean it. The way they ask, that's not the way they mean it. The way they ask questions about enablers is what necessary activities and aptitudes do you need to establish and maintain in order to continue creating value? So basically what resources do you need? Sure. Yes. And then what enablers do you need in your life? Then well, how does, how does Maddie enable you? I, I need a lot of enablers in my life, but that's another story. So we'll talk about that another time. I like your Valley girl voice. <laughs> it's kind of my Keanu voice. <laughs> Keanu Reeves? Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. That's, I know Kung Fu. That's really true. It's versatile. I like it. I mean, he is kind of a valley girl, right? A little bit, a little bit. Okay, good. Glad that's established. The second takeaway I wanted to just briefly talk through is David talked a little bit about the tenure track, non-tenure track, the having a PhD, not having a PhD, colleges versus universities. This is a big issue. I get a phone call probably once or twice a month from someone who's thinking about doing a PhD. And I don't want to get into it in this episode because there were lots of other more fun things that we talked about, but this is a really important issue. And so uh, this summer, we're going to work on an episode with Dr. Cindy Devers about that. It'll probably be a beyond maze, but just for people who are thinking about getting a PhD, who want to really understand the dynamics of higher education, because it is a strange beast, we will walk through that for you as well. I think that's a great idea, Shannon. (laughs) Gosh, can Kiana go home? Okay. (laughs) Our last takeaway is about downtown Bryan and the revitalization that happened in downtown Bryan. We just want to give listeners a little bit more context there. Downtown Bryan is one of my favorite places ever. It's great. I love it. I love RX Pizza. I love Proudest Monkey. Downtown Uncorked. Madison would would kill me if I didn't mention downtown Uncorked and the cheese plate. Village. The Ice House, of course, Grand Stafford Theater, which they mentioned being involved with as well. There's Ronin's, which is a farm to table restaurant that's in the Ice House. And it is just it's all fantastic and just a really walkable area. There's First Fridays, which are kind of a 
community event where people can come, the restaurants and the stores stay open late and there's live music on the street and just a really nice vibe. Is Murphy's still doing their thing? I don't know Murphy's but, Law. Yeah. I, I think they, were, been, they might have been renovating the last time I was there. I don't know. I, don't I haven't been there open, in a while, but, but I like that place. Yeah, it's a good a place. Lot, we had my we had my tenth high school reunion there. X number of years. No, it my, was uh, my 20th is coming no, up this summer oh and gosh. I don't want to go. <laughs> I, didn't, um, I didn't want to go to my 10th because I had heard that the 10th high school reunion is where everybody's like judgy and trying to yes. show off and like outdo each other. Yeah. My experience was completely different. It really? was so good. That's Everybody good. was so nice to each other. People Aww. were hanging out with folks they never hung out with in high school. It was, uh, yeah, it was a, it was a heartwarming, I heartwarming heard, thing. I heard 10 is uh, judgy and 20 is everyone's just glad that you're alive. I'm like that. <laughs> That's premature. That's premature. Um, Okay, but I had jury duty last week and got selected on jury. So I was in downtown Bryan for a couple of days and I went and had lunch at the same exact place both days because I just love it so much. And I was so excited that I got to sit outside for lunch and enjoy the weather. It's just I love it. I love it down there. Oh, I have to say Mr. G's too. I love Mr. G himself, and he is there often. My best friend in college, we would go to Mr. G's all the time. It's the best pizza in the world, Mm -hmm. in my personal opinion. When you go, if Mr. G likes you, he comes over to your table and he talks to you. And it so had, if Mr. G didn't come to your table, that means he didn't like you. No, definitely. It means he doesn't like you. And, and there are no qualms about this. Like he does not, <laughs> he does not care if you know that he does not like you, but I had worked very hard for Mr. G to come over to our table. And so he would come frequently over to our table. And then we went to go celebrate my birthday one time. And my best friend who was very loud and boisterous was there and she Mr. G came over to the table to say hi to us and she proceeded to argue with him about the fact that he is definitely not Sicilian because she had just been to Sicily and I was like well and never came to your table never again never once <laughs> never I again I like how it can be earned and unearned it was That's very fun. unearned I'm still a little bitter with her about that but right. I'll forgive her I'd rather her in my life than Mr. G but it was it felt nice to have him come over it's to impressive the table, that she's but... still your best friend yeah it I seems mean like you know, I should unearned rethink this Mr. G's <laughs> table visits she would be your ex-best friend I d- that's how much i love her amy tanner are you listening i love you and you un g'd me so i can't even go back because <laughs> it's so embarrassing but no you'll love it it's a great it's a great place and they've really done a lot of work to make it spectacular so i think we've established that we love downtown brian and the college station community so we can close out today with a quote the two skills of the warrior are compassion and insight Compassion is easy. It arises spontaneously from an open heart. Insight or discernment requires more skill. We have to choose our battles. Margaret Wheatley. We now like Margaret Wheatley. We just discovered her today, but thanks, Margaret. Yes, and thanks to our listeners. We appreciate you tuning in. We would like to thank both of our marketing and production specialists, Julie Faulkner and Megan Barsinski, for all of their hard work behind the scenes and making our lives so much easier. And of course, our fantastic hosts, Ben Wiggins and Shannon Deer. I'm your producer, Kyle Ackerman, saying thank you, and we'll talk to you soon.